0: Welcome back to another episode of Venture Unlocked, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the business of venture capital. I'm your host, Samir Kaji, and this week I'm thrilled to bring you my conversation with Brienne Kimmel, founder and managing partner of WorkLife Ventures, a San Francisco-based firm that invests in seed stage companies focused on the future of work. Before starting WorkLife in 2019, Brienne led the go-to-market team at Zendesk and was also named the top angel investor by Business Insider. This is a really interesting conversation as we went deep into things like how she spends her time as a solo GP, how she was able to build a strategic LP list that includes folks like Mark Andreessen and Gary Tan, and what she looks for in teams and founders. Now, without further ado, let's get into the episode to hear all of that and more. Hey, Brie. It's so great to see you and psyched to have you on the show today.
1: Hey, thanks so much for having me. It's great to see you again.
0: So I love stories of origin and genesis of how people get into venture. But before we do that, you spent a lot of time as an operator and as an angel and as an LP. Talk about your, your career before venture and ultimately what got you interested in being a full-time investor.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I will say that uh, you know the work-life vision is built out of my desire to build a track record as an angel I truly believe it in the future, everyone will be an investor, an LP, and an operator in some way, shape, or form. Um, And so I started out as an operator, um, you know, as as many people do. Was on the go-to-market team at Zendesk. First focused on our self-served line of business. um, So started building my own personal practice around building and scaling bottom-up SaaS companies. And so I wanted my angel portfolio to reflect that. You know, that was largely based on finding ways to deliver value and to be as helpful as I could on evenings and weekends. You know, I think for the the operators that listen to this, you know, it, it is very hard to find time to meet startups. And so I wanted to find ways to really scale my time and to really deliver value beyond the the very small personal checks that I was writing. So initially I started out as more of a a startup advisor, um, then started writing small checks. And then back in September of 2019, I I went out to raise my first fund, um, which was largely backed by individuals like Eric Yuan from Zoom, Stuart Butterfield from Slack. And, you know, I wanted to maintain consistency where my LPs were experienced operators. Um, You know, the companies we were backing all shared this very similar business model. So there was a lot of repeatability um, in how we think about helping companies. And then, you know, from a community building standpoint, we do weekly community events and I spend about 40% of my week on hiring. And so I do feel like I'm maintaining that operator DNA uh, by talking to a lot of engineers and founding product designers and uh, where I, I like to be as helpful as possible is actually building the go-to-market org. And so that does extend to sales and customer success.
0: Let's go back to 2019 and maybe even a slightly before 2019 and 2018. So I always find in people's careers, there's inflection points in which direction you want to go. You had been an operator And starting a venture firm, obviously, a long-term commitment. It's probably the longest-term commitment. In fact, an average seed fund ends up being like 14 years. So were there certain boxes that you thought being a venture capitalist really checked for you that you said, hey, at this point in my career, I want to become a full-time investor, start a firm, and really commit myself to this for what likely is going to be a multiple-decade type of commitment? What were those boxes, and what was that mental model of deciding to go down the investor path versus staying an operator.
1: So my initial insight actually came from being in close proximity to other SaaS companies in the Bay Area. So as much as I'm very optimistic about the future of work being fully distributed, I remember, you know, once a month I would catch up with other SaaS executives at Dropbox, Airtable, Drift, like you name it. The beauty of being in the Bay Area is getting together with your peers at other companies and really Getting into the weeds on some very specific plays and moves that you need to make to really scale your company, um, and I remember sitting at a dinner and realizing, wow, like the amount of insights that we're learning from people that are really building these new playbooks for, you know, enterprise software was really awesome. And I and I wanted to find a way to really document and share those learnings with early stage companies. So I decided to package up. Um, a lot of those insights and, and create a program called SaaS School. And so this was something that I was running on evenings and weekends and sort of building as my side hustle while I was at Zendesk, um, which was a ton of fun and, and a great way to just really spend time with my friends that were working at other companies. And so that was sort of the early formation of realizing that I was getting a lot of inbound emails from early stage founders and from friends at other SaaS companies. And so I took a step back and really started investigating what is venture capital and, and what is the difference across the various stages. You know, I had been at Zendesk post-IPO, and so we were scaling from one product to many products. And so it was a very different job than say a first money in investor. And so I found having the experience of of seeing a company scale and you know those inflection points that happen where you're self-serve line of business is doing well and you're starting to layer in more traditional go-to-market playbooks was something that I became really just intellectually very curious about um whereas at the early stage as an angel investor you know you are in the weeds you know cold calling engineers and 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 finding you know leverage points to really be helpful and to deliver value to early stage companies and so I really liked living in those two worlds I think what I found was as I was looking at other VC funds and as I was looking at sort of the network that I had built, um, my desire was to do something really specialized to look at the fact that, you know, when you're building a bottom-up SaaS company, oftentimes many of the best in the category have previously worked and built consumer tech companies, and so they don't really identify as being uh, true, like, enterprise people. If anything, like, there's this joke that happens with portfolio companies now, it's like when you hire your first salesperson or when you start to build a go-to-market org, you know, are you no longer a product-led company? Or are you no longer a consumer company, and now you truly, like, have to identify as being B2B? which I think. I think B two B can be kind of a bad word for for two technical founders who just really love geeking out on product, and so I, I yeah I took a took a look at the the ecosystem you know traditional seed funds which even you know back in 2019 a lot of them were, were more generalist in nature. Um, you know I really looked to um, Kirsten Green at Forerunner who's one of my close friends and dear advisors. Um, it was like you know if we could build Forerunner for work to me that's a huge win for the ecosystem to really learn from. Figma, Notion, Airtable, and to really understand exactly like what are the strategic moves that they've made to really build a truly bottom-up product for the workplace and something that you know people take from company to company. That's something that I really look for as a success metric is, is your product so great that when someone uses it and they leave to go to their next startup or to the next tech company? Will they actually take it with them and be the champion at a new company? And so we've now fully deployed fund one, we're now investing out of fund two. And so across the board, it's been really fun to continue to work with operators and to really think systematically about, um, you know, what are the inflection points in a company's life cycle where we can deliver value and we, where we can really help companies scale.
0: It's a great story. And today we are seeing far more specialist firms it could be themes. In fact, we did this survey at the, uh, the raise conference where we found 62% of the, uh, the fund managers that were raising identified themselves as thematic. So not, and, and that is not inclusive of things like region or enterprise and consumer. It's around certain themes like what you do or gaming or web three and all those type of things. And I think that's going to continue now. Going back though, and you have this thesis, but you also had a lot of really interesting experiences pre starting work life as a full fledged venture capital firm. You had been an LP in a, a number of firms. You had become an angel in a lot of different companies. You had the operating background, plus, you had this amazing advisor like Kirsten Green. Can you maybe give us a sense of all those experiences, maybe two or three things that you extracted? that were formative in how you thought about the thesis and the type of firm you wanted to build?
1: I actually, so after college, I I grew up in Northeast Ohio, started out as a journalism major, started adding computer science classes over time. I realized that I liked building websites more than I liked writing stories. So after I graduated from college uh, in in Northeast Ohio, I moved to Sydney, Australia for about four years um, and then spent about a year in Hong Kong as well. The greatest learning there was, you know, as a expat living in different countries and as uh, an American working in a, a regional hub. The most interesting thing for me is I've always been very long on remote work. I really understood the complexities of building overseas engineering teams. Um, initially, I was at Expedia, you know. Then I was at Zendesk, and you know, being at multinational companies really taught me a lot. Both the pain points of scheduling and, and trying to find time in your day when you have international colleagues, um, also the you know feeling of separation or isolation from HQ is something that uh, I think we're we're still. Trying to figure out in the post-COVID world what's what like you know the re- the definition of a remote culture will look like in the medium to long term. I think in the short term we've done a great job over the last you know year and a half, really bringing documentation online and figuring out you know remote happy hours and things that feel just getting the, the bringing the company online. I think now we're going to start to see new interfaces and new benefits and programs and experiences to really make uh, a remote team feel more inclusive. Um, and so I think that that was a, a major, uh, you know, life-changing moment for me was both living overseas, but also experiencing like remote work and remote work at a, a large tech company was really helpful as far as companies in Fund One, uh, early investor in Hopin um, and a number of tools for for remote teams. And so that's something that I think about a lot is, you know, what are the missing pieces to this equation and how can work life both build and back companies? You know, Hopin's been an amazing journey where, The uh, VP of people and culture is is a a friend that was previously at Zendesk. And so, you know, they've gone from four people to now over 850. uh, And that number is changing week over week. And that's over the course of two years. And so it's both amazing from an investor standpoint to see, you know, when when software starts to work, it really starts to work. And what that means from an operational standpoint is all hands on deck and hiring and and maintaining a consistency across an org of, you know, 850 some people who've never met in person. That that said, now, you know, people are starting to, to regroup and to meet regionally, but they are a fully distributed team. It's nice to see that we now have these examples of companies that are thinking from first principle about how to build a really strong culture um, they're also really building the business in a way where it's built to scale very quickly, and I would say faster than ever before. Um, and so I think that my experience as living overseas and also just living that firsthand has been really helpful.
0: All those experiences obviously help shape how you think about the world and, and really invest in the world that you believe in. And it's interesting because you started the firm before the pandemic, and it became so clear that the remote work sort of workforce was really going to become permanent in nature. And at least at the, at the stage and scale it is today, there would be no way you could have predicted that. But this does speak to this you know, new world where there's so many people across different professions that are now creators or they're influencers or they're people that work you know, jobs like myself that do rely on things like the hop-ins and the Zooms of the world. But when you look at the role of being a solo capitalist, I, you know, since your firm is called Work Life, I would love to hear how you spend your time.
1: You know, I actually wrote a blog post about this more as a way to to keep myself in check. Um, I did an audit of my calendar and looked minute by minute, um, you know, how am I spending my time? How many meetings am I taking per week? You know, am I blocking time before the meeting and after the meeting to make sure that I'm coming in adequately prepared and and leaving with really thoughtful notes? I think One thing, um, you know, especially for solo capitalists that are new to building a reputation as an investor is sending a really thoughtful follow up and really leaning into the fact that I do have operating experience and I should have an opinion on go to market. And I do know a handful of candidates that that I should introduce to help a company, irrespective of our investment. And so when looking at the the day to day of a solo capitalist, I, I will say that I was very fortunate to have started this before the pandemic. I had a couple of years at home to really be focused on work and I think that's something that while the firm is called work life and I and I truly do believe that we should empower um and give employees, you know, a path to better work life balance. When you're doing the zero to one of starting a venture firm, there's not a lot of work life balance. And so working from home was actually a, you know, really productive time for me. You know, it enabled me to really um fine-tune a lot of those themes that I was excited about and really figure out like how deep do we want to go on each topic. It was also incredibly helpful as far as uh, building a team. So, you know, I do have a team behind the scenes, which, you know, a lot of solo capitalists do, whether it's a chief of staff or, you know, finding advisors or quiet scouts that are helping you with sourcing for work life in particular. Um, with the name, with the themes that we're excited about, you know, sourcing is something that we we see a lot of things, especially companies in our category. And so it's it's less of support on, on the sourcing side of things. But I do have um, an editor-in-chief that I brought on board. So we do a lot of education, a lot of content creation. And so, you know, while there's no shortage of great advice for founders that are available online, the thing that we've found to be incredibly helpful and really um, provide us with a lot of leverage is actually the way in which we speak to operators and the way in which we package up our investments. So I think one of the important things as an investor is really, and, and something that was helpful for me as, as an angel and then as an LP and then now as a GP, is really um, getting into a good cadence of describing why we made the investment and you know the reasons why it's work-life aligned. That's been really helpful for the firm as far as saying, you know, we actually... Haven't made that many enterprise investments. I'm actually not a huge fan of like the B2 traditional B2B business model, and so if anything, many of our investments have been pure play consumer investments. But they are really enabling a path where you know anyone can start their own business or anyone can become an investor. You know, I was an, I was an early investor in a company called Public, which is a direct competitor to Robin Hood. You know, they're taking on Robin Hood with more education, with uh, micro-communities that are aligned to certain tribes or certain themes. So if you're interested in climate change, if you... Want to support female founders? If you you know care a lot about a cer- certain topic, public will actually present the right uh, types of investments or companies that are are relevant that you could be part of that conversation and really learn before you invest. And you know they're finding that you know the majority of users on their app are first time investors. And so I, I was reading a study that they had done where you know, it was close to 80% of people that have bought a meme stock do go on to diversify their portfolio. And so we tend to think that meme stocks are bad. But in, in reality, memes are sort of this gateway drug into learning about investing into later diversifying, you know, the investments that you're making. And so I find that, you know, across the board, we look for, you um, Category disruptors, or we look for a new take where education and access is something that's being created through our investment
0: and I want to double click on, on a couple of things you said in a second, but going back to you know your time because I, I I do think that your post was really good in terms of the time breakdown and being disciplined on spending time on activities that actually do move the needle for the firm, your founders, your Lps, what a lot of people struggle with, including companies like in in myself in, in particular is that we're constantly putting our fingers in the dam trying to plug holes and you become really reactive and a lot of it is because you're constantly context switching and you're not necessarily always spending the times in the areas that you should what have you found out just as you look at that pie chart of where you should be spending your time that you found it to be the most valuable use of your time.
1: Yeah, and I, I love this topic because you know so many of my peers and um, new funds that I deeply respect. Their time allocations are completely different, uh, and their strategies are completely different. And so I, I think I m- mentioned this where you know how a solo capitalist spends their time is, is their strategy, and so we all have very different strategies. I think at the you know at, at the surface level it looks like oh we're we're all solo capitalists we must must all work in the same way but you know for for work life we place a lot of emphasis on por- portfolio support and education so that's actually a, a much higher breakdown than say other solo capitalists that are awesome it, i would call super connectors and power sourcers where they just see everything they see everything they know everyone they know play by play like which which deals are going down that is one strategy. Um, I would say for us, because we are naturally more thematic in nature, um, we attract a certain type of founder. You know, the majority of companies that we've invested in are operators that are leaving like that last generation of companies in our category to start something pretty similar. And so I would say it's it's more of a community than it, it feels on a day-to-day basis, more like a community than it does like maybe a traditional VC fund, because we all Get together and problem solve and we host a lot of like group conversations and and group activations that said the the thing that i've learned is in you know spending a lot more time on on portfolio support and on sourcing and closing candidates for portfolio companies and really focused on company building what that means is that we take fewer first-time meetings and so we do rely very heavily on the founders that we've invested in to make introductions or to give us a heads up when their friends are starting companies and so I would say that, you know, strategically speaking, that's maintained a lot of sanity on my part. You know, I uh, I see what's happening in the ecosystem and just how quickly rounds are moving. And I have so much respect for generalist funds that are doing, you know, pre-seed and seed stage investing. Like there's so many great companies being built right now there are you know no shortage of new funds but for us because we're going very deep on company building and because we're spending the majority of our time with our current portfolio companies we're leaning very heavily into the reputation that we've built and the value that we've delivered and then consistently reminding founders like do you know anyone who's starting something like we really leverage our portfolio as far as our as far as a sourcing mechanic
0: and it sort of speaks to this overall hypothesis that you know spend time with fewer companies but over index on figuring out ways to add value drive great business outcomes and often what I hear from seed stage companies is some of the smallest investors on their cap table are fundamentally the most helpful and of course you know a 250k check of a four million dollar round is a small piece of a you know seed round but for your fund especially fund one I think it was 10 million that's still two and a half percent of your fund so it is a meaningful part of the uh, the fund. Now, fund one was ten smaller checks, frictionless for the most part. You're co-investing. Now you go into fund two, and I know you've made two investments out of fund two, and the fund size is bigger. The check sizes are bigger. What are the natural transition points that happen, and how have you seen the change in strategy or things that you need to now accomplish? To be able to jam more money into these top companies when you're not just a you know small check.
1: I will say candidly, uh, there was a very large sigh of relief in transitioning from Fund One to Fund Two with the what what I call a, a proof of concept fund. You know we had raised ten close to close to twelve million dollars, um, largely from individuals. So we had a lot of founders that were our LPS. Uh, We also had a lot of founders where we were investing in their companies with, like you said, you know, 100 to 250K checks. Um, You know, we did do a high volume of SPVs later and, you know, Series A, Series B, Series C rounds as well. Uh, So there was a lot of admin, I'll be honest. I, I was very fortunate that there were uh, we, that everyone was working from home and that there weren't, you know, the traditional 4-hour VC dinners because I don't think I would have been able to go to any of them. Like it was a lot of back office admin with a very large portfolio. In the transition to fund 2, you know, we're going fewer, more concentrated checks. Um we're continuing to follow on in fund 1 companies and still doing uh, quite a few SPVs, but, you know, I've brought someone on board. Uh, I've, I've both a back office team and, and someone full-time dedicated to a lot of that admin, which is re- re- relieving a lot of that stress. So we can stay, I can stay personally very focused on company building, but with fun too, it's, it's been great to see the response from the community. You know, I will say that 2020 and now 2021, it was all eyes on enterprise software and remote work and, uh, you know, productivity tools. And so I really felt like it was the community's time to shine. And, and I like to use the word community because every founder that I talked to was really excited about what they're building. I think there was this inflection point when COVID hit, founders realized like, wow, now is it's go time. Um, And so the companies that had a product in market that were ready to be sold, like we sprinted for a solid, you know, two years. Um, And in many cases, companies scaled much faster than expected. And so, you know, as an investor, my job is to stay calm and to think strategically and to be that outside guidance. And so in many ways, um, you know, the work-life portfolio was really, you know, taking a step back and saying, we have cash in the bank, um you know, we're hiring as quickly as we can, but like where where is the world going? Like where is the future of work going? What are the things that we need to build? What are the things that we'd like to see in the world? And so I find that the founders that we've partnered with have also really grown into uh, they've made this transition from being an early stage founder to really being a CEO of a company and being a CEO that's been really helpful to other founders as well and so I'm very grateful to have that community in place which has really helped me scale my time as well um, I think the founder to founder community that we've built is really strong that said you know as as I think about uh, work life and and where the world is going Going post COVID, it has been interesting to see. You know, you brought up Web three. Um, it does seem like remote work had it. It's time to shine, and now it's all eyes on Web three. And so, as an investor, you know, we I do have an opinion on DAOs. You know, I have made a couple of investments uh, that are in in Web three, but it's more of the the work life variation of, of Web three, and so it does touch the future of work and how people will you know, find their next job and, you know, really build a community around the the projects that they're building. So I'm finding that in a lot of ways, like doing that groundwork on community building has really, you know, freed up a lot of my time Um, and the two investments that we've made out of fund two, you know, one uh, is a lead investment. So we are leading seed rounds. The great thing about having founder LPs is we can bring them into now the rounds that we're leading. Um, you know, a, a large percentage of our fund to LPs are portfolio companies and portfolio CEOs, and so we've we've built this community where everyone can be very helpful, and we're structurally aligned to do so. And then the the second investment that we made is uh, we're the second largest check alongside Andreessen, um, and this was a team that I had been tracking for a while. So um, kind of a nerdy thing that that I do, I mean, because we like to back operators and because we have a a, a list of of companies that are really on our radar, I keep a list of interesting people that are most likely to start companies. And so this is an ex-digital ocean team. Um, You know, I've really admired what they've done. I also love that they're a New York-based company. It feels like the New York ecosystem has really grown and, you know, is making a a, a really strong effort uh, during the pandemic. It seems like there's a lot of people that that have, have relocated to New York. And so I view that as a really valuable alumni network and in a really valuable ecosystem. And so I had spent about, I think about seven months with the company before we invested. So that was everything from sourcing and closing candidates. Um, I introduced the first five customers um, and really played, this was kind of a a good case study for work life to say, like, when we lean in, we lean in very hard. And the reason for that is, you know, we want to make customer introductions. Some of them are the CEOs or operators that are you know friends from when I was at Zendesk. Some of them are. We've built some programmatic models behind the scenes, so we we do a lot of cold emails on behalf of portfolio companies and really help you know source and close both customers and candidates. And so we also get very involved on the on the go to market side as well. Um, and so those two combined have been have been really powerful stories for us to say, um, you know, when we lead or we're the second largest check, we do want to deliver a lot of value. And we now, I now have a team and, and programs built behind the scenes to really make that possible.
0: Well, everything we've talked about so far, it, it does seem very hyper-focused on the value-add part to the founder, which on Twitter, everyone makes fun of VCs and you know how can I help you and things like that. But what struck me during this conversation is that it's very really systematic, right? You have the community, you have your time spent on those activities that are very defined in helping them get talent on board, helping get new customers on board at the early stages, which actually does lead into a perfect model for leading checks and leading rounds versus doing a lot of companies and not spending a lot of time. As you think about community, in your case, it extends out to your LP network, which are people like Eric and Mark Andreessen and others. And historically, if you looked at the LP market, it was largely passive capital. It was institutions or families that put in money for an economic return, but there was not much of an extraction of value either way outside of returns. And so how have you seen the LPs that you've brought in really drive value to the firm? And do you believe that this is like a trend that we'll continue to see where we'll have people that you know raise funds and then largely raise from people that they consider value add and not the traditional institutions when they can get away with it?
1: This is one of my favorite topics. I mean, both as someone who was an LP before I was a GP, that was incredibly helpful for me. I I highly encourage, you know, if you're an operator that wants to build a track record as an angel, the best way to learn is to write, um, you know, a couple of small LP checks and funds and really just learn. I mean, you know, a lot of emerging managers in particular that are fine-tuning the themes that they're excited about or... You know, meeting a high volume of companies—they do a fantastic job of of monthly updates. And so, in those monthly updates, I, I learned a lot. I met a lot of interesting people. Um, you know, now I'm a an LP in a handful of of large multi-stage funds, and that's its its own level of learning. And so, I've kind of progressed and maybe progressed in my journey as an LP as well. And the interesting thing is. Um, you know, right now, what we're seeing a lot of this is is largely driven by AngelList, Carta, and the platforms are actually enabling innovation in a way that wasn't possible before. You know, I um, started WorkLife in September of 2019. That was before AngelList had rolling funds, and so that just demonstrates how quickly things are moving. Um, you know, we uh, we just deployed our our last check out of Fund One two weeks ago, and it just I. You know, I, I looked around and realized so many of my friends have have started funds, um, ones that had no desire to ever become a venture capitalist, but they have access and they've been able to, you know, raise decently sized funds on AngelList. Um, you know, we see that now it seems like the uh, operator LP is a really common path. Um, you know, I see many of my LPs are have built a really solid portfolio and they're an LP and maybe four or five other funds. Um, and those individuals are are have been very strategic to the, the work-life community because, you know, we leverage them for weekly go-to-market talks. They'll come in, they'll do a 60-minute conversation, really document and share their playbooks of, you know, step-by-step um, how they've built and scaled their company. Off the record, we'll do off-the-record conversations, which do not go up on our YouTube, but these are mistakes that we made. Like, this is how the world has changed. This is how we lost our first customer Uh, this is what happens when you have a culture problem. And so we do some of these off the record conversations to really give founders an opportunity to say, okay, you know, during COVID and and now that a lot of people are working from a lot of different places, like let's catch up over zoom the same way we would over dinner. Um, and really get into the weeds on some what can go wrong um, inside of in companies. Because I think Twitter is very great at highlighting what can go right. Uh, and you know, and especially, you know, VC Twitter is very good at talking about early uh, decisions and bets that we made that have paid off. But it's it takes a very special group of people and people that trust each other to really get into the weeds on things that can go wrong. Um, and so we really like to lean into some of the difficult conversations as well. But I, I do think that the operator LPs add a lot of value. You know, I will say m- many of them are not mutually exclusive, and so we know that th- they invest in, in many funds. Um, you know, I do think that there is a lot of competition that's happening at seed. Um, you know, competition coming down from from the big multi-stage funds. You know, we see competition with more traditional seed funds, and I think you know all of us are rethinking our strategy. And, you know, many like myself are doing a lot of SPVs and following on into later stage rounds or writing first time checks into later stage rounds. And so I just think increasingly the world is more multi-stage. And so I do find that, uh, you know, the, the operator LPs, they bring a lot of experience and they bring a lot of capital and, uh, but many of them are investing in a, in a lot of the same funds.
0: Yeah. And of course, like in today's world, you know, we do see so many seed funds playing across stages through things like SPVs, Opportunity Funds. We've seen people actually scale pretty significantly. People like Lee Fixel, folks like Elad Gale, Lockheed Groom, and others. But as you also look at these operator LPs, which I, I, I like the term operator LPs, they have this phenomenal wealth of experience running companies and uh, you know the inside baseball of what went not only what went right, but what didn't go right. I think you can learn a lot from. How has those learnings from those operator LPs helped form your view of the type of founders you're backing? I know Fund One had seven unicorns, which is a phenomenal hit rate, but are there certain non-negotiable traits that you think founders should have that were, were really formed through some of the learnings from some of these operator LPs that you mentioned?
1: Consistently, uh, what we're seeing in this environment is there's a, a level of speed and, reten- and intensity that's required to do the job. I, I will say that we're moving into this period of continuous fundraising, where every founder that I talk to, if there was demand for the last round, then you know you're constantly fighting both: how do you hire and bring on as many people as possible? You know, how do you? Systematically take meetings and really build a, a quick relationship with the the right firms, uh, knowing that rounds are getting preempted really quickly. And so I do find that the day to day of a founder has changed a lot, where it's not a start and stop form of fundraising, where you raise some money, you go back, your head's down, you build for a while, then you go out again to raise. If anything, I see this level of uh, thoughtfulness and intentionality, but also, uh, you know, the speed and intensity that founders have to go through where, you know, now that capital has become more readily available, that increases the pressure. And so the pressure to both hire as quickly as possible, you know, close as many customers as possible, I just see how fast things are moving. And so, you know, while uh, investors talk a lot about how fast things are moving, founders, I I find, are not talking about that maybe as much as they should. There's a lot more pressure when you're raising large rounds, when you're raising at high valuations. Uh, when software is easily commoditized. You know, I see this a lot in in enterprise software where at the seed stage, good ideas come in bunches. And so you see a lot of companies that look quite similar at the earliest stages, what really sets them apart and what really creates a breakout company. I mean, Hoppin is a great example of this. There were Five or six happen[s] uh, at the time in which I looked at it, but the speed and intensity that the team had in bringing on board pretty senior executives for how early the company was—you know, bringing on someone like Armando Mon as the chief business officer, bringing on Derek Chu as head of corporate development with a real mandate to find and acquire as many companies that fall into the thesis as possible—and so I, I find that right now. Um, you know it's not like the back in the day, like the glory days of YC where you could hire fast and fire fast or move fast and break things. Like a lot of those statements are no longer true because companies are are raising it pretty high and and, and rightfully. So you know valuations in which we need to look more like companies than we do startups. And so I find that that's something that i I, I think about a lot is how do we partner with the right ambitious founders and really give them the tools and the mental models to transition into this CEO role as quickly as possible and bring on board very, uh, I would say fewer but more senior executives. And so that's where in a lot of ways, you know, the reason I'm spending 40% of my week on, on talent and on sourcing and closing candidates is because we wanna bring in those operator LPs that have built and scaled other startups and, and bring in really senior people who are highly capable as opposed to being reliant on career pages. And uh, unfortunately, I I think what what we're seeing in the short term is that what that means is that fewer more senior people are are joining the companies that we've we've backed. The thing that I'm thinking about is what does that mean for people that are fresh out of school or what does that mean for people that have less operating experience? And so that's something that I've been thinking about as well as we're kind of transitioning into this world where if you look at maybe a company like Notion, Notion's done a fantastic job of hiring people that are highly capable, that have a lot of experience, and they have a very lean team. That seems to be the model that's working well for a lot of SaaS companies. So the question then becomes, you know, what happens for the individuals that don't have a lot of operating experience that want to break into tech that, you know, are are looking for an entry point? And that's something that I've been thinking a lot about.
0: Since you brought up speed and intensity and the ability for some of these companies at the early stage to hire really senior people, which speaks to the, the fact that they need to have capital because those people cost more. And of course, capital is fairly abundant right now at the, at the seed and Series A level. Taking this a, a level deeper and thinking about those founders that are able to attract top talent, those senior people that really act as this massive accelerant for the business, are there two to three personality traits that you've seen to be really effective for founders? To navigate in what is kind of a warp speed world right now?
1: You know, it's actually pretty similar. I would say uh, I truly believe in founder investor fit. You know, there are, are so many great investors out there with operating experience, with a solid portfolio. You know, I think relationship fit is really important. And I see this a lot at the executive level as well. I spend a lot of time with. Pre-seed and seed stage companies really defining um, what is their the company's cultural values. You know, I think this is something that is incredibly important as we've moved to a distributed model for work because you know, it, gone are the days where your company values are written on the wall when you enter the office. And so, I find that being very clear and realistic with who you are and the type of company you want to build is really important. You know, we saw this in national news, you know, with the Coinbase memo, with the Shopify memo, you know, CEOs are responsible for really clearly communicating the goals of the company and the way in which the executive team and each individual employee will live out those values Um, over Zoom, which is incredibly challenging. It's very different than, you know, having a nice office and hosting a company happy hour like that's not company culture anymore. And so I find that helping founders really crystallize who they are, what they want to build, and and how they plan to build it is really important. Work life, actually, our our portfolio is split, I would say, 50-50. Even many of our tools for remote teams are working in an office. And so even that alone starts to really bifurcate the types of people that want to join your company and the types of executives that you're able to hire uh, so I do think you know remote first uh, or remote only is one path, and that attracts a certain type of executive and a certain type of operating team. You know the the in-person teams. What I'm finding is the ones that have worked in office during the pandemic have been ones that have previously worked together at Airbnb, at Plaid, at Stripe. I love backing teams where, you know, it's not just making a bet on one founder, it's actually making a bet on five or six people that have already worked together for four or five years. And so that to me is really fun, you know, as an investor that's getting the band back together, like I go to their off work from their office, you know, I, I catch up with them for happy hour and they truly love working together. And so like, that's the stuff that like, makes me very excited about what we do. Where it's great to see, like, I've learned so much about Plaid, Stripe, Airbnb. Like, I've learned so much about those companies, their cultural values, how they were structured, who reported to who, simply because I've backed a lot of these alumni teams that have left in pods, which is really cool. Um, and so I hope that we continue to see that. You know, uh, my core team at Zendesk, they're now all at Figma. I'm sure many of them will go on to the next SaaS company. I really like that we see these groups of people go jump from company to company. Um, and so I hope that work life, you know one of my like very big ambitions is that we start to see that. Like I would love to see each company that we've invested in because we're involved in the zero to one in determining the company values and really spending time with you know founder coaching and getting them into that position of being a CEO and one that's also helping other founders in the portfolio. I really hope that we see very entrepreneurial cultures uh, spin out of that because we're we're already starting to see that. You know, in our first two years in business, there have been a handful of people that have left to start something, and so I'm happy to see that we're fostering this culture of creativity and entrepreneurship because I think that's a really strong signal that, you know, your the people that you've hired have learned so much from you that they're ready to leave and start something is a really good sign um, from a CEO perspective.
0: Since you've touched on culture and values. How have you seen companies and founders navigate the current world where the number of in-person touch points is just so much more limited than it's ever been?
1: I have a funny story on that front. We uh, Prior to the pandemic, uh, we did our, our first work-life culture event. We did a tour of Airbnb with Brian Chesky. And I'll never forget because the narrative when we were there, the Airbnb team has done such an amazing job with office design with you know the chefs and just the food culture that they have there and just how they think about in-person collaboration and it was funny because we had a mix of you know bottom-up SaaS companies that are more focused on you know design or workplace productivity but we had a handful of tools for remote teams and so they had, had asked Brian you know what he thought about it at the time and you know because they had invested in such a beautiful office and because you could see like physically walk into a room and see people collaborating you know, it, it felt like for tech companies, we are fortunate enough to have the capital to have a nice office to build design these like spaces around collaboration. And so we left there feeling like wow, the office is the future. Like this is this is so awesome. Like we 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 love this Airbnb style of really building a company and creating cool spaces for people to collaborate. And so now, you know, after the pandemic, if you look at, um, you know, Airbnb, you listen to the earnings calls, if you look at a lot of their data around the pandemic, their average nightly stays have gone up. You know, teams are booking uh, Airbnbs for months at a time. And so I think it, the, the funny thing that's happened is that, you know, Airbnb, it turns out Airbnb is the best tool for remote teams because um, it's been the only way for us to catch up in person. And so I'm excited to see that even the uh, companies that were not very bullish on remote work are now like, become like the, the core and critical infrastructure to make it possible.
0: I think we're all evolving together, and and I I came from a culture where we used to go to the office five days a week, and I think there's an element that I do miss of not being in person all the time, and I think you do miss things, but I think most companies will move toward more of a hybrid culture where, you know, you allow for remote work, you understand the efficiency pickups that you can get, but you still find ways to, you know, incorporate in person. To retain those other elements that you don't get through things like Zoom or, in in our case, Riverside here, this has been great. So I want to end with a, a question because you've been through so many journeys. I feel like many journeys in your career. What's the best piece of career advice that you've ever received, and how has that been so foundational for you?
1: The one thing I will say about investing is it, investors are incredibly helpful. I have so many people to thank for, you know helping me with very tactical back office questions, for helping me, you know, refine my thinking around certain themes. My great, the greatest advice actually came from uh, Santi at Emergence Capital, actually. Um, You know, he's become a very dear friend, incredible investor, and, you know, really uh, had such a great relationship with uh, Eric before he invested in Zoom. And the the thing that, that really struck me is I've, I have always found early career, you know, you want to meet as many people as possible, especially as someone that was an operator, angel investor. You know, I, I started going to dinners every night. I was constantly meeting new people. Santi's advice for me was to actually find, you know, a handful of people, like build your own personal board of directors. Who are the two three people where you have similar personal values which is is really important you know at the end of the day people that understand you that understand where you want to go that can really be your thought partners in a very like deep and meaningful way you know as opposed to i i find in tech you know there's always so many new companies, new funds, uh, new themes that we're excited about, it, it's very easy to get caught up in, in in chasing new concepts or in getting distracted by shiny objects. And so that advice has been incredibly helpful as, fine, as, as far as finding a handful of people where you love spending time together, you learn from each, each, each other every time you catch up, uh, and you can really go deep with that person because, you know, as we know, I mean, venture is... I call it a very long and complicated sales cycle. You know, I think oftentimes I get asked how I source deals. And like, sometimes it's someone I met seven years ago. Sometimes it's someone that I met last week. And so, you know, you never know. Um, relationships change very quickly um, in Silicon Valley. And so you never know where your previous coworker is going to end up or, you know, where a portfolio company, an employee at a portfolio company, uh, portfolio company is going to end up. And so I find that, uh You know, It's important to go broad with your network, but most importantly, it's important to find a handful of people that'll really be that thought partner and guide you uh, in the journey because it is very long.
0: I like the piece of advice of getting your personal board of directors or those central nodes that really act as people that you can rely on and and vice versa. And so great piece of advice. And of course, uh, Santi and the Emergence team have done fantastic based on companies like Zoom and Viva. Not a bad place to uh, to get advice, but Brie, this has been a lot of fun. I really appreciate you being on the show and congrats on all of the early success with WorkLife.
1: Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. It was great to catch up.
0: Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Venture Unlocked. We really hope you enjoyed our conversation with Brianne. To learn more about her or WorkLife ventures, be sure to go to ventureunlocked.substack.com for detailed notes on the show as well as my ongoing commentary about the world of venture capital. Venture Unlocked is also available on iTunes or Spotify for download. And while you're there, please leave us a rating and a review as it really helps us out. And hit the subscribe button in order to get each and every Venture Unlocked episode as soon as it's released.